Hello and welcome to another episode of Damn Interesting Week. We are so glad you've decided to join us. My name is Jennifer Lee Noonan. I'm Angela Epley. I'm Bradley Calhoun. And this was a Damn Interesting Week. So let's get started with our first link. First link. From The Guardian, great news. The California Redwoods are making an amazing recovery after earlier wildfires. Nice. Yeah, if you can remember back in August 2020, those sweet summer days, (laughs) wildfire was burning almost the entire Big Basin Redwoods State Park in California. These were ancient redwood trees. Some of them dated back more than 1,500 years ago. Now, they are naturally fire-resistant thanks to the thick bark that they have, but these wildfires were so intense and the flames Mm. were so high that even the foliage of the trees was destroyed in canopies over 300 feet high. Yeah, those are tall flames. Yeah. Right, and the difference between resistance and proof. Right, right, right. (laughs) Yeah, and that's why it was feared that the redwoods might actually never recover. The good news is, however, a few months later, something incredible happened. Many of the trees began sprouting teeny leaf needles from their blackened trunks and branches. And two years later, ah, the forest has turned green. Yeah, nature doesn't need (laughs) us. Nature's fine. Mm -hmm. You know, and sometimes nature does need a fire because that's Mm -hmm. part of nature, right? Now, what's weird about the recovery, or not weird, but unique, is that the fresh growth in these redwood trees is sprouting from buds under the bark, Hmm. deep, deep inside of the trees. And apparently some of these buds have been dormant for over a thousand years. Wow. And they noticed this. Researchers, you know, being researchers, they covered the sprouting buds to see if they would stop photosynthesizing. But nope, they still (laughs) grew. The buds were tapping into stored sugars, and radiocarbon dating reveals these sugars were stored for up to 21 years. So the resurrection of the redwoods relied on tapping into old stores of carbon to fuel these dormant buds into life, which is kind of like ketosis for the human body, right? Yeah, yeah, (laughs) yeah. I mean, it does. It feels like kind of a jerk move to be like, hey, it's growing in this weird way we don't understand. Let's try and stop it. Yep. Why would you cover the little buds? You should be happy about it. Maybe if we did not know already about redwoods sprouting buds under the bark, we are kind of in the throes of historic pandemics. The idea (laughs) of a tree using ancient sugars to sprout new things. Is this going to kill us? Let's find out. No, no, no. It's new growth. All good. (laughs) Right. I'm wondering how often it's meant to burn naturally Mm -hmm. and how often we're actually stopping that. Right. I know that happens here a lot in Texas where there's a lot of this stuff that should be burning. And then we get these huge flash fires because of it. We're definitely exacerbating and altering what what might be sort of the natural average because Mm -hmm. presumably they have evolved these kinds of protections, right? Yeah. Well, they're like, finally, we get to use, like this old thing I've been hoarding (laughs) in the back. They want to use it. We're not letting them. (laughs) (laughs) This is my time. Mm -hmm. (laughs) All right. Next link. Next link. From the BBC. U.S. man sues lottery after being told 340 million win 
is an error. <gasps> what? Oh. I could have just yoinked it back. Oh, yeah. I'd be oh. mad, too. Yeah. Yeah. John Cheeks wasn't being cheeky. Oh, I'm sorry. I couldn't help myself. Uh, when he first saw the Powerball winning numbers matched his ticket. But... As you already know from the title, when he took his ticket to the Office of Lottery and Gaming, his claim was denied. Yeah, He said, quote, one of the claims agents told me my ticket was no good just to throw it in the trash can. <laughs> Instead, Mr. Cheeks kept the ticket and did what any good red-blooded American would do, found a lawyer. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> so he is now suing the lottery for damages in the amount of the Powerball jackpot, plus the interest he would have earned on it per day, mm. totaling $350 million. Wow. So how could this happen? <laughs> According to the court documents, Powerball and the lottery contractor, the DC-based Teodi Enterprises, claim the confusion arose from a technical error. Mm. <laughs> In a court filing, a Teodi employee said that on the 6th of January, 2023, the day Mr. Cheeks bought his ticket, a quality assurance team was running tests on the website. <gasps> and on that day, a set of test Powerball numbers, which matched Mr. Cheeks' <gasps> numbers, were posted on the website, quote, accidentally, according wow. to the court documents. <laughs> Those numbers remained online for three days. Oh, my Whoa. gosh. He has a case. Oh, yeah. But unfortunately, the numbers online did not match the numbers that were actually drawn at the last lottery. Okay. So, as you can imagine, Mr. Cheeks is now suing on eight separate accounts, including <laughs> breach of contract, negligence, infliction of emotional distress, and yeah. fraud. They don't list the other four. So I'm sure the lawyer got creative. Yeah, I mean, he's he's not going to get the $340 million, but he absolutely could get, like, infliction of emotional distress. Like, they mm -hmm. were negligent. They screwed up. They hurt his feelings. He gets something, but he's not getting mm -hmm. the full payout. There's no way. No, no, no. But the lawyer, ooh. Right, hey Mr. Now. Cheeks' uh, lawyer, Richard Evans, who's hoping to go by Rich after this court case, <laughs> said in court documents that because the winning numbers matched Mr. Cheeks' numbers, he's entitled to the entire Jackpot. Yeah, well, yeah, <laughs> that's yeah. a negotiating starting point. <laughs> Otherwise, Mr. Evans said Mr. Cheeks is entitled to damages for gross negligence of the lottery and posting erroneous lottery numbers, as you mentioned, right? He'll get something. Likely. Yeah. I mean, I just want to know what's up with their QA team that they take three days to tell. Like, that's insane. Three I mean, they days. work for the state. Yeah. I get it. Where's but, your production like, environment, guys? Yeah. Oh you don't push to production. Come on. <laughs> <laughs> In a statement to the BBC, Mr. Evans said, quote, this is not merely about numbers on a website. It's about the reliability of institutions that promise life changing opportunities while heavily profiting in yeah. the process. Mr. Cheeks told the BBC he is hopeful. I know the justice system will prevail, he said, mm. adding the lottery winnings would have been life changing for him and his family. Knows the justice system will prevail. What is yeah. that? I mean, he plays the lottery. He's an optimist. Let's just guess, say. Yeah. Look, and it's so, never too early to start sucking up to the judge. That's true. So, right. And here's the nice thing. If he wins, he plans to open a home trust bank meant to assist aspiring homeowners so that one day he can be an institution that promises life changing 
hunting <gasps> opportunities while heavily profiting in the process. <laughs> but yeah, I don't feel bad for him. No. Because <laughs> <laughs> as a reminder, the odds of being struck by lightning over the next year is one in 1.22 million. The odds of Mr. Cheek or anyone winning the jackpot are one in 292 million. Wow. So I should buy some lightning protection is what you're saying. (laughs) Next link. Next link. All right. This next one comes from Tasting History with Max Miller, and it's called Why a Tire Company Gives Out Food's Most Famous Award. Ah, uh, the Michelin star. Yes, right? the Michelin yeah. ones. And some people don't even know a Michelin starred restaurant and Michelin tires are the same people, but they are. And huh. this article is asking why. <laughs> <laughs> so, not surprisingly, or maybe surprisingly, I don't know, the tire company did come first. In 1889, in the French town of Clermont Ferrand, Brothers André and Édouard Michelin, or Michelin, as I'm probably going to say for the rest of this article, they founded a tire company, which was kind of a strange business move because at the time there were less than 3,000 cars in the entire country of France. So their main marketing strategy was not our tires are better than the others, but driving is cool and you should buy a car. (laughs) And what makes a car better than a train, which was up to that point the main form of transportation between cities? Well, A car provides freedom. Those pesky trains have set schedules and, more importantly, set destinations, while having a car means you can zigzag to all the best places without ever having to sit through the boring ones. But how are you supposed to know what's boring and what isn't? So, in 1900, they published their first Guide Michelin, which was given out for free to all their customers. Oh. Yeah. Yeah, it's the Rick Steves. (laughs) (laughs) Right. Well, and because if you can't get someone to buy a new car, you can at least convince your current car owners to take a bunch of road trips and wear Mm -hmm. out their tires that way. Mm -hmm. It was a distinctive little book with a solid red cover, and it included maps, car maintenance tips, explanations of the different driving laws in different regions of France, and the locations of fueling stations and auto mechanics across the country. And then, as a little bonus at the end, it also included a list of hotels and restaurants you might find useful on your travels, just names and locations. The guide as a whole proved reasonably popular, so by 1904, they started adding other countries to the book, starting with Belgium and quickly followed by Algeria, Tunisia, Italy, Germany, Spain, Portugal, and then finally the British Isles in 1911. Over time, however, people started to take these free guides for granted and basically started thinking of them like a giant CVS receipt they never asked for and had no intention (laughs) of reading. And supposedly, the breaking point came when André Michelin went into a tire shop one day to inspect the merchandise and found one of his little red books being used to prop up a wobbly table. (laughs) It's like the yellow pages. (laughs) Yeah. And he was like, that's it. They don't respect our hard work. Quote, man only truly respects what he pays for. Oi. Yeah. (laughs) (laughs) Well, you know, skin in the game does have some psychological proof behind it, right? Well, it does. He was right. The next year, in 1920, the guide was no longer free. It now cost seven francs. But to balance that out, it also stopped containing paid advertisements. And people started buying them right away. They also did a little focus testing and realized that their restaurant list was one of the more popular parts of the book. So they expanded it, including more restaurants on the list, but also hiring a team of restaurant inspectors who would dine anonymously in the establishments and give particularly good restaurants a star. 
It wasn't until 1931 that the system was modified to include one, two, or three star ratings. And payola. Yeah, yeah, yeah. (laughs) (laughs) And it wasn't until 1936 that they actually wrote down what the stars meant. One star was a very good restaurant in its category. Two was excellent cooking worth a detour. And three was exceptional cuisine worth a special trip. Because everything was still in terms of driving, right? It was about driving to these restaurants. It's also worth noting that at no point did service, atmosphere, or anything else come into play, only the quality of the food, and that is still supposedly Mm. the case today. They also understood, right from the beginning, the importance of the reviewer's anonymity. Back in the 20s when they first started, the inspectors were told to not even tell their own families what they did for a living. And today, it's so secret that the top executives at Michelin do not know who their own inspectors are. It's just this black box department that has grown into a completely separate thing from the rest of the tire company. If they're anonymous, then how do they not know that it's one of the restaurant owners who's giving themselves three stars? It could be. Someone could play the long game and get a job at a tire company just to review their own restaurant. (laughs) (laughs) I mean, or their cousin or their brother or nepotism. It's definitely possible. Mm -hmm. But the Michelin Guide did have some importance outside its restaurant ratings, most especially when it came to their maps. Michelin was known for hiring the best cartographers, and they would completely update the maps every single year so you could be sure you had the latest information. They were so well-known for their maps, in fact, that when Hitler got busy with his whole thing, he reportedly used copies of the Michelin Guide as the best source of information on how to invade both Belgium and France. Do they use that as one of their blurbs now? (laughs) Right, right, right. (laughs) Like, Hitler approved. Yeah. (laughs) Probably not, because fortunately, the same tool came back to bite him in the end, because Ah. as the Allies fought back and Germany started to see the writing on the wall, they prepared for an imminent counter-invasion of France by destroying all the street signs and all the maps they could find in order to make it harder for Allied soldiers to navigate. Mm. But someone in the U.S. had a 1939 copy of the Michelin (laughs) Guide from France, and they handed it over to the War Department. And the military actively reprinted and distributed the 1939 Michelin Guide in 1944 to their frontline soldiers storming the beaches at Normandy. Like, they all supposedly had one in their pocket. It's crazy. (laughs) And while the guide wasn't officially published during the war years, everyone involved was apparently still doing their thing, just waiting for the chance to get back to work. Because only one week after the war ended in Europe, they published the guide for 1945. Though it did include the caveat that, quote, This edition, prepared during the war, cannot be as complete and precise as our pre-war publications. Nevertheless, it should be useful. (laughs) They also notably eliminated three-star rankings for several years after the war because food shortages and other issues of recovery meant that no one was realistically able to meet the requirements, and Michelin simply was not going to lower their standards. But everybody did bounce back eventually, and by the 1950s, the opposite problem was happening. It was pretty much a given that any three-star restaurant and a lot of two-star restaurants were going to be extremely expensive. Hmm. So in 1957, they began acknowledging restaurants that served good food at moderate prices, marking them with a red letter R, which later changed to the Michelin Bib Gourmand Award. But it's important to remember that the cuisine does come first, regardless of price. And in 2016, a street food stall in Singapore called Hong Kong Soya Sauce Chicken Rice and Noodle won a Michelin star, (laughs) despite the fact that their main entree cost just $2. They did sadly lose their star in 2021, but they are still included in the Bib Gourmand. Wow. Bib, by the way, does not mean like a bib that you eat with. 
Bib is the Michelin Man's official nickname, short for Bibendum. <laughs> yeah. Oh. <laughs> what does that mean? Yes. Well, Bibendum, as we all know, is Latin for to drink. And they've got oh. a great print ad from the early days of the company explaining this logic, where Bibendum is at a Last Supper-style dinner table with a bunch of sad, deflated tires, and he's the only one fully inflated, and he's lifting this cocktail glass full of nails, shouting, now is the time to drink. Wow. wow. Advertising. Yeah, because, quote, a Michelin tire drinks down the obstacles. Makes total sense, guys. Wow. At any rate, wow. <laughs> that's the story of Michelin stars and Michelin <laughs> tires. They do still technically publish a guide for sale these days, but all the information is also posted for free on their website. So I'm not really sure how the Michelin star wing of the company makes any money other than good <laughs> PR, which it definitely is. I'd like to see, too, the difference between the Michelin star review and the Yelp review. <laughs> right, exactly. <laughs> but those Yelp reviews, they can absolutely be gamed too. Yep. Oh, 100%. Yeah, yeah, yeah. We, we've had Yelp offer, hey, if you paid us, we would verify that your negative reviews are legitimate and remove any that aren't. I'm like, uh-huh. Yeah, sure wow. you will, buddy. Mm. Like, I'm, I'm sure they will. But I'm like, we're not paying. Yeah. Yelp's a scam. <laughs> but Michelin Star, that's legit. 100%. <laughs> that's <Wow>. nobody's cousin. <laughs> Uh -uh. French do everything uh, legitimately. Write the book. <laughs> All right. Next link. Next, next link. link. Okay. This one comes from fizz.org. New research finds that our ligaments and bones don't grow the way that we thought. Mm. Yeah. This is going to blow your mind. Get ready. New research by Northeastern scientists questions the long-held belief that the connective tissues that gives us mechanical strength, like tendons, ligaments, bones, even skin, form in the body by cells coming together. According to this new research, our tissues are more likely formed by cells pulling apart. You can read the research huh. in the publication called Matter, but it's challenging this long-held theory that human cells form and connect tissues using patterns encoded into our DNA. Jeff Ruberti, professor of bioengineering and a co-author of the study, said, collagen, the main protein that forms much of our tissues, is not prefabricated and positioned by cells, but rather formed by cells cooperatively pulling apart from each other. So what we propose is that the cells in your body work together to produce structure by literally creating lines of tension along which collagen precipitates into structure. In short, the force causes the structure that then resists the force that caused it. Super simple, right, guys? <laughs> I mean, it's like they're stretching a tightrope between them. Yeah. And then a bunch of acrobats accumulate onto it. And then you yeah. can no longer stretch the rope because the people are all holding it. Yeah, it's almost like if you were to stretch that rope and like it just like brings a substance into being that just freezes that rope. It's super weird to put your brain around because, you know, it's challenging a theory that most of us have assumed or understood mm -hmm. at some basic level through early education. But here's what they did. So for the study, the team used donated human cells. They created a model of a human cornea to observe the biomechanical processes as the cornea was formed. So they just watched a cornea getting formed with these <laughs> donated human cells. And the fact that the process could be seen in real time was key because previous studies in this domain largely relied on still images. And what they observed was that cells were pulling apart to form the structure, identifying five unique types of pulls. 
Now, this research will be used to help inform therapeutic processes at the Northeastern spin-out company, Brilliant Strings Therapeutics, which I'm sure you heard coming, right? Which he (laughs) and other researchers have founded. The discovery could help to lead to better treatments for fibrosis, other medical conditions that cause wounds to heal poorly. Yeah. So the medieval... Science stretching device. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. They, they were onto something. They were just, for they were just a little early. They yeah, were just, they were just fortifying little... your structure. Mm-hmm. <laughs> just ahead of their time. Pulled a little too much. Just yeah, a too I mean, much. it does make a good case for stretching, though. Like, mm-hmm. as far as that's good for your ligaments and might strengthen them. I say because I have terribly weak ligaments. I'm pathetic. <laughs> and I'm like, maybe stretching would help. I mean, it can't be bad for me unless I'm on the rack, but... <laughs> Well, it does give some weight to why bodybuilders do what they do. Sure. Like the, I, I heard many, many years, yeah, you got to uh, break that muscle down mm-hmm. to build back up. Uh, yeah. I didn't, but... Uh, yeah, yeah. <laughs> Never taken that advice, but it's <laughs> some good advice. No. <laughs> well, maybe you won't have to because science will do it for you. Fingers crossed. There you go. <laughs> Next link. <laughs> Next, Next link. Okay, so this comes from the Smithsonian Magazine. Egypt halts controversial plan to renovate ancient pyramid. Oh, okay. Surprisingly, a committee of experts concluded that altering the pyramid would compromise its historical value. Well, yeah. I mean, yeah. Are they trying to put (laughs) wallpaper up or are they like making it so nobody dies in there? Like, what's the level of renovation we're talking about? They were going to turn it into a theme park, right? Yeah. Well, they were going to put a Starbucks and a discotheque in there. (laughs) Right. Okay. Uh, Yeah. Yeah. But yeah, they're not going to do that anymore. They let's back up a little bit. This is the 200 foot tall pyramid of Menkara. It was built in 2500 BCE and is the smallest of the Giza's three pyramids. Okay. Part of the great tomb was once cloaked in granite blocks other than limestone. However, ancient Egyptian builders had only installed 16 to 18 layers of these blocks by the time construction was halted upon Menkara's death. Many granite blocks were just left at the pyramid's base, never to be placed. Hmm. And a millennia of weathering and vandalism reduced the pyramid's casing to just seven granite layers. They say vandalism, but what they leave out in the article here is that this happens a lot. Humans reuse ancient materials for new structures all the time. Right. It wasn't gang tags. It was people saying there's some free granite. Let's see. <laughs> uh-huh. Yeah. The plan was to restore the pyramid's granite casing in a three-year renovation effort. Hmm. But this, quote, project of the century was met with backlash from researchers around the world. Monica Hanna, an archaeologist and Egyptologist at the Arab Academy of Science and Maritime Transport, shared a statement on the behalf of a group of archaeologists who called the plan entirely unscientific. <laughs> she says that even if they were to renovate, the structure can't handle those loads anymore because of erosion. Mm. And as I mentioned before, a lot of the stones were used by ancient Egyptians for other things like statues and bridges. So there's no getting those pieces back. Mm -hmm. And in response to the pushback, Egyptian officials called in a team of experts to review their renovation plan. (laughs) Which apparently they hadn't had the first time. (laughs) No, no, they did not. They did not. It was a big showpiece. That was another thing in her statement that she was very, very angry about, that it was grandstanding more than anything Mm -hmm. else. Not Mm -hmm. going through any levels of oversight. No, no. So this new team was led by Zahi Hawass, Egypt's former minister of antiquities and star of many Discovery Channel documentaries. (laughs) The Pyramid Review Committee unanimously objected, emphasizing the importance of maintaining the pyramid's current state without alterations. 
again, they also said it would be impossible to figure out exact origin positions of any of those casing blocks. Well, yeah, it sounds like a lot of them were never even there in the first place. Right. They're trying to finish constructing it, but it's already worn halfway away. Like, that's, it's a completely ridiculous idea in the first mm-hmm. place, which makes it sound like a politician came up with it. And now the experts have actually said, no, that's stupid. And they're like, OK, I guess. Right, right. And they'd have to use modern concrete. Mm. So rest assured, the pyramids are safe now. Hawa says that people can stop calling him and sending him emails now. <laughs> Nothing's going to happen to it. Nice. But this, for me, does get us into a little bit of a tricky series of questions about restoration of works of antiquity. <laughs> right. <laughs> Howler monkey Jesus, anyone? Uh-huh. Right. Uh-huh. Or how, how much do we restore the work so that it may endure for another few centuries? Right. Um, right. Protect it know. versus, yeah, yeah. I feel like that's such a foolish idea now that we have AI that could effectively restore and recreate these and store that indefinitely. Yeah, I'm sure AI could make a much better Mona Lisa. Like, you know, don't knock it till you've seen it. (laughs) I'm kidding. I'm kidding. (laughs) That being said, next link. (laughs) Next link. All right. Well, I have kind of a quick one here. It's from Yahoo News and it's called A Rare Lego Piece Found at Pennsylvania Goodwill Set to Sell for Over $18,000. What? Dang. And nearly all of it is contained in the headline. Basically, a Goodwill warehouse in Dubois, Pennsylvania, received, as they often do, a box of jewelry that had been sorted out of larger donations at various stores and then sent to the warehouse to post for auction on shopgoodwill.com, which is what Goodwill does with all of their jewelry these days and basically anything that isn't clothes or dishes. Hmm. And in the box was a teeny tiny little mask, which they couldn't really figure out what kind of jewelry it was supposed to be, but they tested it and it was 14 karat gold. So they opened the bidding on it at (laughs) $14.95, which is slightly less than the melt value of something that size. And immediately the bid skyrocketed, at which point they were like, hmm, maybe we should try to figure out what this thing is. And it turns out that the little mask is a rare Lego piece called a Bionicle Golden Kanohi Hao mask, of which only about 30 exist in the world. They were originally gifted to some Lego employees in 2001, and a few more were given away as prizes, but they were obviously more of a commemorative thing than a real Lego piece, which are not normally made out of 14 karat gold. <laughs> Now, up to this point, no item had ever sold on ShopGoodwill.com for more than $5,000. And this Lego piece initially closed its auction at $33,000. Whoa. Yeah. Unfortunately, the original winning bidder was unable to pay. So the item was relisted and just recently closed again at $18,101. Listen, you find a way to make that first payment when you win it the first time. Good gosh. Yeah. I mean, it might have just been a kid. Like, they might not have had any idea. Yeah, I can see that. And this does still make it the most expensive Goodwill item ever purchased by a long shot. And assuming the sale goes through, it will also make it the most expensive Lego piece ever sold, but only by about $3,000. What? You can actually see a whole list of the most expensive Lego pieces ever sold on BrickFact.com, which is kind of a weird top 10 list because the first two underneath the Bionicle mask are a solid gold Lego brick for $15,000 that was again a commemorative piece given to employees in Germany in the 1980s after they had worked for the company for 25 years. And then you get a solid gold minifigure for about $7,000 that was actually sold to the public in 2013, but only 5,000 of them were made. After that, we drop way down to a plastic curved windscreen that averages about $200 at auction. 
So it's a big range. Like yeah. they've got a few solid gold pieces and then there's regular rare Lego pieces <laughs> that normal people might pay for. <laughs> but, you know, $200 isn't nothing. You can go check out yeah. BrickFact.com if you think you might have some rare Lego pieces in your collection. I don't, I'm sure, but we do have a lot sitting around the house. I might check them out. You don't know for sure. You just have to go through each one, one by one, and check. <laughs> yeah, exactly. That won't be time consuming. So that's the most expensive thing sold, right? But not necessarily the most expensive thing found at a Goodwill. Because I think they found like an old Roman statue or something like that not too long ago. A bust of a statue that ended up being nearly priceless. <laughs> yeah, but didn't they have to give that back? Like when it's a historical item, I don't think they can sell it. I guess you're right. Right, yeah. But when does this Lego thing become a historical? <laughs> right, right, right. <laughs> the ancient bionicle culture. Of, like... <laughs> I mean, it has made me reconsider. Like, these were mostly things that were given to employees, right? Mm -hmm. And it, like, I have some old corporate merch that I'm still hanging on to in the thought that, like, maybe someday you it'll be know. rare. Like a tote bag or something? <laughs> well, no. So, like, in the 2000s, I worked on a video game called Turok Evolution. Oh, yeah. Which was supposed to be like this big splash for the company, and it wasn't. It lost a ton of money. And so I'm thinking it's, it might become famous in the same way that E.T. for Atari is, where they had to bury like tens of thousands <laughs> of them out in the desert. <laughs> but I have like I have a jacket with the logo on it, and I have this little like plastic first aid kit that's fully branded. And it's got like Band-Aids and whatever. And it was basically like, when you get bitten by a dinosaur, pat yourself up. Like the whole thing was bizarre. <laughs> and I was like... This is so weird. It might someday be worth something. Yeah. I've watched yeah. enough Antiques Roadshow to know that you are probably right. Yeah. Mm -hmm. I mean, listen, if any listeners want to pay me for it, the bidding's <laughs> open. Like, I'm, I'm available. <laughs> Let the negotiations begin. Exactly. I'm not giving it to Goodwill, that's for sure. <laughs> Next link. Next, Next link. link. All right. From Nature, we have another scientific expose. Apparently... The decimal point is 150 years older than historians previously thought. Did they forgot to carry the one? Hey! Right, right, right. <laughs> yeah, sorry. Sorry. <laughs> so Giovanni Bianchini, in the 1440s, he was an Italian merchant and mathematician. He had some astronomical tables in which this decimal point appeared, and that has caused all of this hullabaloo. Previously, we had thought that the decimal point's earliest known appearance was from an astronomical table, but written by a German mathematician, Christopher Clavius, in 1593. But Bianchini, he was more than just an astronomer, so he worked as a Venetian merchant before becoming an administrator of the estate of a powerful family who ruled the Duchy of Ferrara at the time. So not only was he managing assets, guiding investments, he was also responsible for casting horoscopes which meant he had to master yeah. astronomy. It was one of those like, hey, if you're going to be a mathematician, you need to know the cosmos, right? Sure. So Glenn Van Brummelen, we're going back to today. He's a historian of math at Trinity Western University in Canada. He had hoped that Bianchini's work might help to reveal how and when Islamic astronomy knowledge reached Europe because he was a merchant, mm. right? He would have traveled all over the place. So it seems natural. He might have found something in Islamic science in his journeys and used that as an inspiration. But instead, it seems like a lot of the things he did were simply out of his own incredibly creative mind. At the time of Bianchini, European astronomers were exclusively using the sexagesimal base, which is base 60. And this was inherited oh. from the Babylonians. And it's still in use today for writing latitudes and longitudes because it divides a full circle 
into 360 degrees, each degree mm -hmm. into 60 minutes, each minute into 60 seconds. But let me tell you, it's difficult to carry out operations. Like if you ever try to multiply with sexagesimal numbers, oh my gosh, yeah, astronomers no. would have to convert a value into the smallest unit to do the calculation and then convert back afterwards, which is not only laborious, but ripe for error, right? So mm -hmm. traders and accountants, on the other hand, they were taught to calculate using real-world weights and measures. So to enable simpler calculations, Bianchini invented his own decimal scheme. He basically described a system for measuring distances in which a foot, or 30 centimeters, was divided into 10 equal parts, called unti, each of which was divided into 10 minutia, and then into 10 oh. secunda. Sadly, this did not catch on, and his penchant for base 10 was not previously thought to have influenced his astronomy. But in poring over a treatise that the guy wrote in the 1440s, our researcher of today realized that in places, he was not only using a decimal number system, but also a decimal point, much like the one we use today. And that was kind mm. of the big aha moment. Now, Van Brummelen made the discovery while he was teaching at a maths camp for middle schoolers. <laughs> One evening, he was discussing the source material with a colleague over Zoom, trying to translate the dense medieval Latin. They came across a passage in which Bianchini introduces a number, quote, with a dot in the middle, <laughs> the number is 10.4, and shows how to multiply it by eight. Quote, I realized that he's using this just as we do, and he knows how to do calculations with it. I remember running up and down the hallways of the dorm with my computer trying to find anyone who was awake, shouting, look at this! This guy's doing decimal points in the 1440s! Such a real oh, genius moment. Bunch of nerds. <laughs> I wish I could get excited about such things. Yeah. Oh. Now, the key part of the manuscript is a series of trigonomic tables, including a sign table. And astronomers at the time used spherical trigonometry to calculate the positions of celestial bodies on the surface of a sphere. And he introduces his decimal point when stating the amount that the user should add or subtract to calculate values that fall between one entry and the next. That right there is exactly how Clavius used his decimal point in 1593. And historians had always wondered why Clavius never mentions this innovation again. Why would you just invent something so powerful and then just drop it? Well, maybe it's because Clavius may have it was already 150 years old. <laughs> yeah, because yeah. he appropriated the decimal point from a predecessor, which is easy to do when you have old astronomers buried under the tomes of history. I mean, he's at least he is claiming he invented it to a certain degree. I don't think anybody else later was claiming that they were just like, we're using this system. Yeah. He's sort of describing it. It makes a good case yeah. for he at the very least knows he's bringing it to an audience that has never seen it before, whether or not he went to the Islamic <laughs> world and picked it up there. Right. Yeah, we just haven't found that text yet or it may have been burned. <laughs> yes. All right. Well, that is all we have time for today. We're so glad you've joined us. Some of the articles we did not have time to get to today include... What if singularities do not exist? Why women wake up more during surgery? And alarming new satellite can spy on individual people. So all that and more, plus everything we talked about today, can be found on daminteresting.com. If you like our podcast and want to support us, you can do so at patreon.com slash damninterestingweek. In the meantime, my name is Jennifer Lee Noonan. I'm Angela Epley. I'm Bradley Calhoun. And we hope you have a damn interesting week. Bye-bye.